Lord God, we've sung that we could sing of your love forever, but it is not always easy to sing of your love. We know of many reasons that diminish the joy that should sing. And we pray that as we study the life of the church in Philippi, we may recover something of that joy despite the trials of life. And may be better equipped to sing your love in the world around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the year in which we remember the start of the First World War. And of course, since this is the UK, we tend to think about uh, that war, or indeed any war, from the point of view of the British. But I actually want to think just for a moment uh, about the beginning of the war from the point of view of the uh, Germans and Austrians and Hungarians. They had... uh, they were squeezed as a, a, a territory. And the, the First World War began with an incursion into Belgium. Germans raced across Belgium um, far faster than anyone was able to stop them in order to get to France. Why did they do that? Well, because they were squeezed. Uh, the, the slice, I'll do it your way around, uh, so your way around, let me just get this right, yes, that's northwest for you, um, uh, th- there, was, there was Germany in the northwest going down to Austria and Hungary uh, in the southeast, so they had uh, France and Spain and Italy on one side, that way, and they had Eastern Europe uh, on that side. They wanted to get through to France as quickly as possible to defeat France because they did not want to have to fight the war they knew was coming on two fronts. And they wanted to close down one front in the potential war. And the reading in front of us today is about two fronts, about the challenges that come from outside the church and the challenges that come from inside the church. Uh, the uh, difficult news to recognize is that we will always face those two fronts. There is nothing in this passage that says one of them can conveniently be dispatched so that we only face the other. We will always face challenge on two fronts. And the first, where I want to begin, is verse 27, which is where our reading began. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's no easy way in English, without going into lots of explanation, of translating that word, conduct yourselves. But it's kind of a shame that that's what we have to do, because it it comes from a, it really means behave as a citizen. Conduct yourselves. Behave as a citizen, by implication of this gospel, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's when it's worth remembering what sort of place Philippi was. It's in Greece, as we would now term it. But it was one of the very few, uh, strictly speaking, colonies of Rome. Um, Lots of uh, soldiers would have had, retired soldiers would have bought a plot of land at Philippi. It felt very Roman. 
you could apply for citizenship of Rome at Philippi. It was, in every sense, not just a a city influenced by Rome, but it was a pure colony and was seen as that. In the temples of uh, Philippi, there were statues to be worshipped, the same kind of statues that you would have had. In Rome, there would have been a statue of the Emperor Nero, who was to be worshipped as Lord. So when Paul, in verse 27, is using a word for citizenship, he wants to say, now. I'm talking to those who are living inside a Roman colony. But I want you to remember that your citizenship is not, like the Philippians around you, uh, in a, a, a Roman colony, in an imperial, worldly colony. On the contrary, everything I have been talking about, about being called by Jesus Christ, about the gospel that needs to go out from us of Jesus Christ, about the world that we will belong to one day, that is the citizenship that marks you out. And that gospel, that good news, is a a gospel that is able to look final things in the face. So in verse, before this, uh, verse uh, 23. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He knows the last thing that can happen to him, literally the last thing, is the first thing in the beginning of a new life. He knows that after this life comes life with Christ. That is the citizenship that is to be exercised. It, just like Rome, kind of pokes a little bit of itself into Greece as a new as a colony. So heaven, where Jesus Christ sits, pokes itself into Philippi with a colony that is the Church of God. Now, I suspect that we come Sunday by Sunday uh, alert to what it is that we're coming from. But that citizenship, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because you are citizens of that gospel. That citizenship is a reminder that we are also to gather together as a people thinking of where we are heading to. It's very stark contrast. That word opens up two citizenships. You cannot be a citizen, a full citizen of both of those worlds in the sense of truly belonging. Of course, we live out our lives in the world, but our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, then, whether I come, verse 27 again, and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith that is this gospel. And I want to pay attention to that word contending, because it is expecting that the business of the gospel is the business of a conflict. Uh, Paul is in a Roman prison. He has been imprisoned there because of his insistence that it is not Nero, but Jesus Christ 
who is Lord. The Romans really didn't care what kind of God you worship as long as it didn't have political implications. Actually, the same may be true today. But Paul knows that Jesus Christ is Lord and therefore Nero is not, and that's a threat to Rome. They need to contend in Philippi because they are in a Roman colony and they face the similar kind of opposition. Anyone who says that the ruler of this world, as the world deems it, is not the Lord, but that it is Jesus Christ, can expect to be opposed. I met someone uh, this week, uh, uh, doesn't matter who it was or the context, uh, a a lovely, um, good, I'm sure, uh, person who wanted to say that uh, while they weren't a Christian, they believed their value system was uh, kind of meshed with, with what Christians believed, and they'd worked in Christian kinds of contexts. Now, it was important in the context of the conversation I was involved in just to nod and smile. But inside I'm going, yeah, but the first value is that Jesus is Lord. And if you don't follow that value, then the rest don't matter. That's the value. And so Paul encourages them. I want you to be standing firm in the one spirit, and that could well be the Holy Spirit there, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. It's got to be a united front. The Romans, of course, were brilliant at contending as one man. They had those, those unbelievable... You probably saw them in, in your Ladybird book of Roman armies, um, like the one I grew up with, that had um, pictures of Roman soldiers with all their shields on their heads, uh, over their heads, forming a, a square. Uh, they were, or, or in triangles, uh, getting ready to make a, an assault. The Romans were used to contending as one man. And Paul is saying, take the best of what they've got. Learn to contend as one man, but do it for the gospel. Without being frightened, verse 28, in any way by those who oppose you. And in this context, that's going to be the Romans. Uh, There was beginning to be the noises that would eventually lead to the terrible persecutions under Nero. And what were they supposed to do? Well, extraordinarily, Paul goes on to say, if you contend as one man, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. There's an amazing claim. If, If you act fearlessly because you yourselves genuinely like me, are unafraid of uh, a neutral between uh, carrying on in the body or going to be with Christ. That very fearlessness becomes a sign that disturbs the certainty uh, of the Roman world, of gods and heaven and earth, because they had nothing like it. Their poetry is full of well, we better make the best of it because we're going nowhere in particular. But if you contend as one person, fearlessly, with a confidence in the gospel that pokes out from heaven so that you are a colony here on earth, then that becomes a sign for them. It's a disturbance. Why are they like this? Where is this confidence from? And to the extent that it's a disturbance for them, the Romans, it becomes a sign of your own salvation, a sign of confidence for you. 
they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle, you know, you saw I had, and now here I still have. Last verse of chapter one. And again, there's something in here that I find simply extraordinary. A, a, a tiny little use of word. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. We could imagine what that might mean, to suffer for him. But what does it mean to believe on him, or to believe on behalf of Christ? And I think what Paul is saying to them, and of course therefore he is saying it to us, is that your faith, a faith that contends, a faith that takes Jesus Christ in heaven seriously, a faith that knows where it's going, a faith that operates out of being a colony of heaven here on earth, your faith now, in this generation, is like Jesus Christ's own faith in his generation. After all, as you'll see in the famous poem that's laid out in chapter 2 there, being found in appearance as a man, verse uh, 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him. Jesus knew that death was not the end. And out of that confidence... He was willing to humble himself. And you in your generation, this is the on behalf of Christ. If you in your generation are unafraid of death because you know what lies beyond, then you are being like Christ. You are having faith on behalf of Christ. You're doing Christ's job. That's that's extraordinary, isn't it? That you and me are called to do the job of Jesus Christ himself in our generation. And he says, it's like mine too. I'm suffering. Uh, I don't care about life and death. I'm trained to a Roman soldier right now. There was Jesus in his generation. There's me and mine. And you in uh, yours, you're going to go on. And I want you to have that sense of a faith that is like Jesus's. Well, let's go on to chapter 2. If you you have any encouragement, uh, it's better since you have, since you are united to Christ, since you dwell in his love, since you have fellowship in the Spirit, since you have a tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. I wonder if you ever kind of get that feeling from reading Paul that to cope, to cope with what he is saying, you'd have to kind of have a head transplant as well as a heart. You'd have to kind of take your head off, turn it round and put it back on again. He is, he is uh, chained to a Roman soldier. He is writing to a church that is beginning to experience deep opposition. And he says, make my joy complete. Which one of us could say that? Isn't that simply astonishing? It almost makes me want a situation in which we were more opposed than we are. Because all the frothing that there is these days from the Christian community because someone's worn a cross and gets 
sacked. It's dreadful for that person and we should oppose it. But really we have very little to worry about compared to Philippians. Make my joy complete. And then there's this uh, wonderful verse, uh, verse 2. Uh, I'll, I'll do it literally. Uh, it would be boring if it was literally in our, in our Bibles. But Paul says, be of the one mind. Be of the one love. Be of the one spirit. Be of the one purpose. Just as he has previously says, said, contend as one man in the one spirit. Now he says, be of one mind, of the one love, of the one spirit, of the one purpose. And the front now is different. That's what we need to register. That's what happens between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, this is those who oppose you. This is the Romans. This is those who know that Nero is Lord. But in chapter 2, when we get to uh, the, um, what, verse 3, I suppose... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we know that that poem is coming, and it's with enormous self-control that I have left that poem to someone else next week, because it's a famous bit, and I love it. Um, but we know from those, that, first chap, that first paragraph of chapter 2, we're now talking about the church. This is no longer those who oppose you in the Roman Empire. This is the tension and stress that is going on within the church. This is the internal front. Uh, Flip over the page, if you would, to chapter 4 and verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. See, they have contended with Paul. They've done the contending as one man, except these are women, so we'll, we'll call these people. Um, they have done the contending as one person, but they themselves are divided. And whatever is going on for them seems to be happening at a wider scale so that they need to be reminded, don't do anything selfishly. And if you want a summary, it would be this. As far as the outsiders are concerned, contend. Don't expect it to be easy. Don't expect it to be a matter of saying, well, I wonder if you'd just possibly um, think about, oh, just, you know, um, got a carol service. Um, Come to a carol service, please. That's great. But it's probably not what Paul had in mind by contending. It, It means take on the full struggle. And there will be some of us who are facing proper opposition. Serious uh, opposition. I know one of our uh, members who works in um, a public sector environment just find it incredibly difficult to get a hearing for anything that holds to absolute truth. Contend and support those who are contending alongside. As far as the externals are concerned, contend. As far as the internals are concerned, consider. Contend, consider. Those are the words that Paul uses. Consider that others are better. Now, opposition from the outside then and now 
is to be expected. It belongs with the gospel itself. And it will bring suffering. Of course it will, because it is the pattern of the master. That's what we heard from our gospel reading. As Jesus knows, he has a bitter cup of suffering to drink. It belongs with the gospel. And opposition from the outside should meet contending. Opposition on the inside is also actually to be expected. It belongs with the gospel. Think of all those exhortations to love one another. Many come in Philippians, but in other places too. We wouldn't need to to be exhorted to love each other if we were all the same. It's because we are sinners, it's because we generate conflict between ourselves, it's because that's normal, and it's because God wants in his colony on earth an example of a people who take the normal conflicts that go on in any community of people and deal with them by considering others better than themselves, deal with them by love. Opposition on the inside is normal, but it should meet a considering others better than ourselves. As a principle, you'd want to take from this that we are to meet internal division, internal division with tender hearts, and external division with steely minds. We meet internal division with tender hearts and external division with steely minds. Of course, tragically, the story of the church down the ages has been that so often we get that the wrong way round. We are harsh with each other and floppy about the world around. We're untroubled by the fact that our dear and lovely but ungodly friends are heading for a future determined by sin and death. And we bring to the church itself all the steel that we should take into the world. Just think how you felt when you saw that slide of TJ as I am determined to call him. (laughs) That's good news. There was spontaneous applause. Just think what it would be like if we felt that every time we were reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ. Tender hearts inside the church, steely minds, for the world outside. We know there is good news for Will and Claire today, but we sit, and they, on so much greater news that establishes a colony of heaven here on earth. With that news, we are to contend in the world around us and to consider one another better than ourselves. I wondered how to end, and a suggestion came to me, and I'm inclined to follow it as a way of responding to what Paul is calling us 
to be and to do. Would you please turn in your Bibles to page 625 and stand. There is, in, um, in that phrase in uh, Philippians, it says, be like-minded. It does not mean think exactly the same thoughts about everything. It means when you've got your conflicts, have the right priority so that your orientation is back to your home base in heaven. And in that sense, be like-minded. And so the suggestion I want to follow was that we stand and say together Psalm 133 and remind ourselves of what being like-minded should feel like. Uh, Aaron, for those who don't know, uh, was the uh, brother of Moses, the first of the high priests, and would have been anointed as such with oil. Hermon is a mountain in the far northeast of Israel, far away from Jerusalem. But, but it is the only place, I think, in Israel that carries snow fairly regularly. And so it melts, and that explains the image of the psalm. And I'm going to take a radical decision uh, because uh, we are who we are. When it says brothers in the second line, can we say sisters as well? I don't mean sisters as well. Can we say and sisters? Brothers and sisters. All right? That makes sense? So Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. Stay standing if you would. We're going to join in a creed, um, but I haven't got my crib book, so something will come up there, and I uh, invite you to join with me when I turn around and find out what it is I planned. So we proclaim the church's faith in Jesus Christ. We believe and declare that our Lord Jesus Christ... The Son of God is both divine and human. God of the being of the Father, the only Son from before time began. Human from the being of his mother, born in the world. Fully God and fully human. Human in both mind and body. As God, he is equal to the Father. As human, he is less than the Father. Although he is both divine and human, he is not two beings but one Christ. One, not by turning God into flesh, but by taking humanity into God. Truly one, not by mixing humanity with Godhead, but by being one person. For as mind and body form one human being, so the one Christ is both divine and human. The Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory 
the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 